Policy Lowdown, the podcast from the Maryland Center on Economic Policy, offering straight talk on the policies that matter most to Maryland communities. I'm your host, Kevin Slayton. Today is a very special episode as I have the entire Maryland Center on Economic Policy policy team here in studio and others on Zoom. We're going to talk about what to expect in the upcoming legislative session. As many of you know, Maryland's General Assembly meets for 90 days um, starting on January 10th this year. And it's during that time that they will review and adopt the state budget. Most importantly, they can't leave until they've balanced the budget. And they're going to consider thousands of bills. And that's a lot of impactful state policy change that can happen in such a very short period of time. And so one of the things that will shape the tone of the legislative session is the state budget, as that affects almost everything the state does. So I would like to start off the conversation with our, our research analyst, my good friend Christopher Meyer. I want to talk to him about how the state's finances are looking for the budget next year. Chris, welcome to the Policy Lowdown. Thanks so much, Kevin. It's always a pleasure to be here. Man, we're glad to have you here. So, so we don't know yet what the governor's proposed budget is going to look like. But we do know uh, that as a state, we will be facing many challenges. What's happening with the state budget? And what does that mean for all of Marylanders? So for the past few years, uh, in the wake of big federal uh, pandemic response bills like the American Rescue Plan, the state had huge, really unprecedented budget surpluses. Uh, That era is essentially over now. uh, And in some ways, we're back to where we were pre-pandemic with the change that We are now phasing in the blueprint for Maryland's future, a historic reform to our school funding policies. Um, But lawmakers didn't pass enough revenue to fully support those changes. Uh, So we are looking at some structural deficits in the next few years. What is a structural deficit? That means the difference between the amount of ongoing expenditures, regular things that you're doing every year, and ongoing revenues, the money that just regularly comes in. So the structural deficit is the difference between the amount of ongoing regular expenditures and ongoing regular revenue the state has. So for the coming budget year, the state has a structural deficit in the vicinity of $700 million. But by the time 2029 comes around, that's going to be more than $2 billion. Hmm. So what that means is we're facing a choice between raising more revenue or cutting services. So it's possible that there may be some service cuts in the governor's budget this coming year. And we always know those cuts tend to happen um, in areas where folks can least afford those cuts. Absolutely, yeah. They uh, tend to affect, you know, things like, uh, again, we don't know what cuts might be in this year's budget, but typically a lot of the things that the state does uh, 
are important for building opportunity, especially for Marylanders of color, so those cuts will tend to generate disproportionate harms. Um, the issue is that in coming years, as those structural deficits grow, that choice between revenues and service cuts uh, is going to become a lot more stark. Uh, in addition to potential cuts in currently planned programs, uh, what these structural deficits mean is that we can't expand successful programs or start anything new without either cutting something else or raising revenues. Uh, there are also some specific services that had benefited from additional federal funds uh, from things like the American Rescue Plan that are now seeing shortfalls. Uh, one example of that being child care. Mm. There's also been some, some conversation, actually quite a bit, Chris, about possible cuts in transportation funding and how that will affect road repairs and transit service in, in, in local communities. Is that related to, to, to these uh, challenges that the state will be facing? So that is partly related and partly separate. So transportation has its own separate funding source. Things like uh, fuel taxes, transit fares, uh, tolls, but it also gets some revenue from the corporate income tax. Uh, and the issue is essentially that the cost of meeting our transportation needs is growing more quickly than those revenues to support those needs. Uh, and we are very concerned about what deep transportation cuts could do to Maryland's economy in the short term and the long term. Effective transportation systems are critical to our economy. And if we continue to not invest in those major transportation needs, it will only make our state's fiscal situation worse in the long term. Hmm. Uh, briefly, uh, because we'll be covering this in more detail in a future episode, aside, uh, Chris, from cutting services and putting off repairs, what can we do to ensure that the state can balance the budget and still meet the needs of Marylanders? Uh, there are a lot of things we can do. We can start by closing corporate tax loopholes uh, that allow large and wealthy corporations to artificially shift their profits out of Maryland and into either low-tax states or offshore tax havens on paper. Uh, we can reform our state's income tax to make sure that the wealthy few are paying their fair share and take other similar steps to tax wealth, money that comes from what you own rather than what you do. Uh, by taking steps like that, we can raise well over a billion dollars per year, even while expanding our child tax credit to uh, reduce childhood poverty. Well, Chris, thanks so much. We're going to come back to you a bit later in the show to talk about some other topics. But for now, I'm going to turn to, uh, to our policy analyst, Tanika Richardson, who is, who is she's our lead on housing policy. Um, so, Tanika, welcome back to the show. In episode four of this season, you may remember, Tanika, we talked about some of the policy changes over the last couple of years that have led to the new protections for renters. But, but it sounds like housing is still going to be a big issue in this year's upcoming session. Why is that? Yeah, so as Chris has already talked about, um, the federal pandemic money has run out. Um, we're seeing it across the nation. Um, and Maryland is no, um, ex no exempt to that fact as well. Um, so in addition to the money uh, running out, we also have rent inflation, um, which is also has also kind of contributed to the housing crisis that we see here in, in our state. 
Um, like even before COVID, like Maryland was already an expensive state to live. Um, so when you add that, that fact with an addition with inflation, with a lack of um funding to kind of help folks prevent eviction, um, we're we're seeing um we're still seeing the same housing crisis, unfortunately, that we had during the pandemic. Um, and what we do know is that um the federal money that we did have during COVID, it did help. Like during that time, we saw the number of evictions kind of pause and kind of cut in half, and we were able to save families. But since that time, um, since the money has run out, we're unfortunately seeing those numbers of evictions go up again. So what are some of the policy solutions we could see proposed in the legislature? Is this an issue our elected officials are talking about? Are you aware? Yeah, so... um. They're definitely talking about it. Um, and uh, with housing, you know, it's a number of policy issues that we could you do, you know, to kind of tackle this. Um, one thing is that we're hearing that Governor Moore will be introducing a housing package. Um, in addition to that, other other legislators are considering other housing bills as well. Um, to kind of assist with this housing crisis um, that we're in. Um, one in particular is the, um, we're, we're trying to push to have a the states um, kind of fund their own version of emergency rental assistance. Um, I know just recently um, Stout has come out with, out with a report that was just released that says that basically, um, you know, if the state was to invest $15 million um in eviction prevention funds that it would save roughly 5,600 families from eviction. So that's huge um, kind of going into next year. Um, in addition to that, like that's what be like probably the major housing bill that you'll hear a lot about is keeping eviction funding, um, eviction funding um, funded. Um, but in addition to that, we're also looking at just cause evictions um, and a tenant safety act as well. Well, thank you, Tanika. I look forward to having you back on the show after the session so we can get a sense of the progress that was made on these issues. Next, let's turn to our state policy fellow, Jasmine Otto Burrow, who is focused on a couple of other issues related to economic security for families. Welcome back to the show, Jasmine. Thanks for having me again. Uh, in episode three of this season, we talked to uh, Jasmine about one issue, along with our friends from Casa de Maryland, um, that, that I know will be a major focus again this coming year, and that's access to health care for immigrant Marylanders. Jasmine, can you remind our listeners what the goal was there, and has anything changed since we last discussed this issue? Yes, of course. Um, so as we talked about last time, accessing and affording health care is a major concern um, for immigrant communities, especially members of our communities that are undocumented, who due to their immigration status cannot access many public and even sometimes private insurance options. Um, and the Access to Care Act, which has been introduced in uh, previous legislative sessions uh, changes this by allowing Marylanders, regardless of status, um, to be able to purchase insurance through our state's health exchange, also known as the Maryland Health Benefit Exchange. Um, and because there haven't been too many changes to address this issue, um, there is continued efforts, as you mentioned, to ensure that the exchange is open this time around. Um, and we do that by ensuring that we get approval for a federal waiver um, that can open the exchange for um, our communities here. Um, and also this past session, there was a 
bill that was passed that required the state, um, the state's uh, Department of Health, um, and also the state exchange to produce a report on what it would entail um, to provide coverage and dental care um, to undocumented Marylanders and compare options, um, also depending on uptake of, of coverage. Um, and specifically, it looked at a five-year implementation plan starting in calendar year 2025. And while, and in terms of the findings, while I won't get into the weeds of the costs for every coverage option listed, um, it's important to, po to point out that uh, costs vary significantly depending on projected enrollment and uptake, which according to the report does have a high degree of uncertainty. Um, for example, to cover people from all ages in Medicaid-like option um, who are otherwise eligible for Medicaid, but for their status, the cost may range from 66 million to 216 16 million per year. Um, what the report does recognize is the importance of expanding coverage um, and recommends doing so incrementally in order to assess expenditures more effectively, which is an approach that has been taken um, in other states who have expanded uh, Medicaid-like coverage and other types of coverage to um, their undocumented residents. Um, there's also been uh, another report that came out from um, a coalition that we're a part of, the Mar uh, Maryland Healthcare for All. Um, and the purpose of this report, again, was to examine more of like the impact of healthcare expansion policies on hospital uncompensated care in the state um, over the past 20 years. And again, just a reminder, uncompensated care is medical or, or hospital care um, for which no payment has been received, including from folks that are uninsured. Um, and what we found in, in this report um, was that following the implementation of major healthcare reforms in the state, um, uncompensated care experienced by Maryland hospitals declined from over a billion in fiscal year 2008 to over um, <clears throat> 800 million in fiscal year 2022. Um, so this is a conservative but estimate and difference of about $460 million in savings. And again, this is significant um, because the amount of um, uncompensated care does impact hospital rates for all payers. And that is then used for the cost of hospital um, uncompensated care in the state. So again, it's to our benefit that we look at the ways to reduce these costs. And while there may be additional factors contributing to declines in uncompensated care, um, analyses do point to a positive economic impact of healthcare reform and expansion through savings. Thanks for that very thorough update. You may also recall this fall that you also published an in-depth look at Maryland's cash assistance programs and how the state is using its federal funds under the Temporary Assistance for Needy Families program. Tana, um, are, are we anticipating any changes to that program? Yeah, so there are a couple of things um, that we hope are considered and implemented that can improve the program. Um, <clears throat> some of the recommendations in the report include increasing the benefit amount that is more um, aligned with the cost of living expenses in the state. Um, we also recommend eliminating the, the current practice of reducing cash benefits for families in subsidized housing by counting the first $60 they receive in housing as income. And then we also um, 
talk about an unspent balance that has increased over the past several years, uh, specifically TANF federal funds. And we encourage these funds, um, again, to be used directly for the families who are in TANF. Um, TANF is a program with a challenging history and, and has long contributed to racial injustice, but there are a growing number of states working to make their programs more effective, um, including Maryland. Um, we believe that the current Secretary of Human Services is committed to improving the program, and we're hopeful that they will adopt some of our proposals. Um, we also hope to see uh, the TANF work program, which many families are required to engage in as, as a part of receiving cash assistance, um, to effectively cater to the needs of families and parents striving for upward mobility. Um, not only is it one of our recommendations, but there's also major interest from different stakeholders uh, to see this program improve. And there is a required and pending report from, um, I believe the University of Maryland School of Social Work that is due this upcoming year, um, where we hope to see additional methods to strengthen the program. Well, definitely sounds like there are some interesting opportunities for reform there. And that was very thorough as well. Thanks for sharing that, uh, Jasmine. Uh, for more on policies that are critical for children and families, though, I'm going to turn the conversation next to Nunso Amuna. Uh, he's our, our Kids Count Director. Nunso so glad to have you also once again on the show. It's good to be with you again, Kevin. Always a pleasure. So as we've talked about before, Kids Count is really focused on well-being for, for children and families. And there are a lot of different factors that affect that. What would you add to what Tanika, as well as Jasmine, have already shared? Not so. Yes, uh, Kevin, as you know, uh, METSEP has been working for years with uh, the cash campaign for, of Maryland and uh, Casa de Maryland and other organizations on uh, to expand our state's uh, working family tax credits, the ending common uh, child tax credits. Actually, this year, as you know, our coalition had a, a, a big success with the passage of the Family Prosperity Act, uh, but the structure of our tax credits still is behind low-income low workers and who don't claim children under taxes. Uh, we know that the end income tax credit, or EITC, is a powerful anti-poverty tool uh, if you work for low wages, you may be eligible for uh, refundable tax credits, meaning that you get cash back during tax uh, time. Uh, however, for workers not uh, claiming dependent uh, children on their taxes, if they work full-time, uh, even at uh, minimum wage, they earn too much to qualify for EITC. Uh, this affects people who are non-custodial parents or caring for children in non-traditional ways. It affects uh, young adults just uh, who are just starting in the workforce, as well as uh, youth aging out of foster care. Uh, so this year, we're working to increase uh, the income eligibility for this group, so all low-income workers can benefit from this powerful uh, tax credit. Um, I, I urge listeners to uh, go to uh, Tax Credits for Maryland, Tax Credit for MDFamilies.org, to learn more and get involved. Uh, we're also expecting to see legislation again to expand uh, access to school meal for all students. Uh, this is another example of a pandemic program that worked very well. Uh, all students across the state are ab were able to get uh, school meals for free without their parents having to fill out paperwork or, or facing the stigma of, be of, uh, of being a low-income student. 
unfortunately, that uh, the federal program has ended that was providing this uh, as, uh, free meal for, uh, for students. But there's an effort in, uh, in our state, in Maryland, and other states to continue providing uh, free school meals to all children using uh, state funds so that no child would have to face uh, a school day uh, hungry. That, that, that would be excellent. We hope to see that. Uh, thank you also for sharing those examples. They, they sound like really powerful ways to help children and young adults succeed. And, and it's another example of why our state needs to reform our tax system, as Chris was discussing earlier, so, so that we can have those resources to do types of things such as, such as what you have mentioned, Nunso. Now I'm going to introduce um, the center's research assistant, Musab Ibrahim. He focuses on policies related to the criminal legal system, and so we're really glad to have him join us as well. Musab, thanks for, for being here, man. Thank you, Kevin, for having me. So so Maryland has has had some major changes in criminal justice policy over the last few years, including legalizing recreational cannabis this year. It should be a big topic, man. What issues are you keeping an eye on for this legislative session? Yeah, Kevin, firstly, I'll say we'll be advocating for to secure full funding for the women's pre-release facility. Uh, to sort of recap, the women's pre-release coalition uh, advocated in 2020, in fiscal year 2020, to construct a, a, a women's pre-release facility, the um, only one that would have been constructed in the state since 2010. Um, and after a after a government veto um, in fiscal 2021, the legislature overrode the veto. And since then, the the main task has been to try and secure funding, uh, operational and capital funding for uh, beginning the phase phases for uh, constructing the facility. And so we're we're in that battle currently in our um our current ask for the governor and the legislature is um, around uh, to sort of uh, looking at previous facilities like Dorsey Run, for an example, the, the ask would be around in the $40 million range in capital funding. Um, and so that would be the goal going into this legislative session. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, and uh, another thing is we're going to expect a lot of conversation on how youth are treated in the criminal legal system. Um, this isn't an area that METSEP has done a lot of work on in the past, um, but we understand from media reports and our partners that there is some appetite or um, uh, an attempt to revisit past legislation that strengthen protections for use, particularly when they are interacting with police, like being interrogated, for an example. Um, the laws currently say have parents uh, have a right to be notified, and the that the uh, that the youth also have the same right uh, to an attorney as adults. So um, I, I think we're going to expect to see a lot of conversation around those reforms, and there's potential for those reforms to be um, undone. And so there, there's going to be a lot of work to be done there. Um, you mentioned cannabis earlier. Uh, there could be, as you mentioned, like cannabis was legalized, uh, recreational uh, legalized cannabis uh, for, uh, last legislative session uh, in uh, 2022. And, and so the 
overall effect so far has has been positive in terms of tax revenue uh but there was a sort of uh, uh an expectation that that money would flow to communities uh particularly localities and, and local uh local budgets um to to communities that have been harmed due to the past har uh, the past mass incarceration and the harms from the war on drugs and so uh there was sort of the short window to set up a program by which they could um uh facilitate that um uh, that revenue distribution um and i think we're hopefully um looking to see how that turns out in this uh upcoming session as well and looking to see the equitable distribution of those funds um and then finally uh we'll be looking at uh, making more transparent the cost and the impacts of uh, criminal and legal fines and fees, um, particularly with the state and uh, local municipalities like Baltimore City and Prince George's County, and how these fines, uh, you know, particularly looking at which fines are most hurtful to uh, local residents, uh, local black and brown residents of Maryland, and um, you know, looking to make that data more transparent and, and more clear, uh, particularly with how those collections and how those fines flow through state revenue and how uh, this, in effect, is an extraction uh, of wealth from our communities. Um, uh, so we'll be uh, legislatively advocating towards um, a full repeal of criminal legal fines and fees. Um, and it going to be a multi-year sort of process, but um, uh, the, the, the impact is pretty big. So we'll be looking at that. Thank you. Well, I just want to revisit real quick, uh, Musab, as it relates to the pre-release facility uh, for women, is the, is the resistance, is it an issue of the sticker price or is it something else there? Yeah. That's a good question, Kevin. I, I think the issue is the i i think there's potential um that there's a mismatch of priorities mm -hmm. i believe that currently uh i believe that previous administrations were not as uh keen to see the this project out or you know particularly since the the, the bill was vetoed in fiscal year 2020 um there, there doesn't seem to be a lot of appetite to get it built now. Now that we have a new administration, you know that remains to be seen. And I, I should say that currently there is, and I think I forgot to mention this, uh, that there, there's currently twelve million um, allocated between the within the last two to three fiscal years. And so, um, but hitting sort of like repeated roadblocks around. You know, whether this is a proper amount to get funding started, whether there's actually been design uh, designs made to project the cost of the building. There's there's sort of like a mismatch of where advocates want uh, the, the state to be at with uh, regards to the timeline of construction and where the state currently is. And so I think being able to align those priorities, this legislative session will be very key. Uh, and that particularly key with securing uh, funding to fully construct the pre-release center. 
Thank you, Musab. Uh, before we wrap up, let's go back to Chris to talk about policies affecting you know, working people. Chris, over the last few years, the legislature has passed some really big bills that improve pay and benefits for, for folks who are working, including raising the minimum wage. Most folks remember that. Uh, we raised it to $15 an hour and creating a public pay family and medical leave program. Both of those were huge pieces of legislation. But we know that it's not the end of the journey necessary to improve the working conditions and economic opportunities for many folks who are just trying to get by. Mm -hmm. What challenges are, are working people, Chris, in the state still facing today, and how can policy changes help? So you're right, Kevin, that we have made a lot of positive changes in the last few years, but there are still some major holes in uh, our policies to make Maryland a great place to work. Uh, we expect to continue to work on some of the priorities that we have been working on in recent years. So things like making sure that Tipped workers are guaranteed full minimum wage protection rather than a sub-minimum wage, uh, making sure that unemployment insurance is enough to actually support unemployed workers in getting by while they look for a new job uh, so that they're able to continue things like putting food on the table, uh, making sure that workers have fair schedules, uh, and ensuring that people can actually understand how their pay is calculated and confirm that it is actually correct. Mm -hmm. uh, there are also the areas the state could take actions to improve the experiences of people working in uh, some really essential industries. Uh, so things like home care. Uh, so that's at-home assistance for people who are either aging or have a disability and therefore need help with everyday tasks. Mm -hmm. Um, those jobs are currently very low paying, uh, and we have supported legislation in past years to do things like making sure that the agencies that employ these workers are properly classifying them as employees uh, and making sure that we're paying sufficient wages. So we expect to continue to work on those priorities that we've pursued in the past uh, this coming year. Uh, Finally, Maryland has a lot more protections for unions than other states, but there are still gaps, especially uh, in several public servants' right to collective bargaining. Uh, essentially, federal law does not uh, say almost anything about public sector workers' right to collective bargain, to collectively bargain, excuse me. Uh, and that all has to be established in state law. But currently, there are pretty substantial categories of public workers who simply don't have the right to collectively bargain, unlike all other workers in our economy. I want to thank my entire team at the Center on Economic Policy, um, the, the research team, as well as the policy team, for joining me for this conversation today. I think it's really important for us all to learn more about the policy choices that our state leaders are making um, and their impacts on us. I encourage all of our listeners um, to reach out to your local state delegates, your local state senators, and let them know what is most important to you. And I look forward to revisiting some of these topics right after the legislative session so we can get an update. Remember, you can find podcasts, archives, and resources from this episode at mdeconomy.org slash policy dash lowdown. And while you're there, you can sign up for our email list or support the policy lowdown by making a donation to the Maryland Center on Economic Policy. You can also find the Maryland Center on Economic Policy at MD Economy on threads 
Instagram, and Twitter, and MD Economic Policy on Facebook. Thank you all for joining. See you next time. Those that will stand up, call our nation back toward justice and righteousness, are often bashed or, or labeled as socialist and unpatriotic. Many are labeled as instigators and, and rebel while rousers.